From the darkest reaches of space to the deepest corners of your mind. Your mind. Welcome to From the Void. When you hear the term serial killer, most people have a certain image that pops into their head. Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Ed Gein, and a host of other truly monstrous people come to mind. Serial killers like these have been around since the dawn of time, but the term itself is relatively new. Up until the 1970s, in the U.S., serial killers were generally referred to as mass murderers by both law enforcement and in the media. The term serial killer was created and is generally attributed to Robert Ressler and John Douglas, two FBI agents and profilers who spent decades interviewing serial killers in an attempt to understand just what made them tick, and hopefully to help provide law enforcement with a better understanding of what to look for. The term also provided a distinction between mass murders and serial killings. Mass murder is when someone kills a large group of people at one time, whereas a serial killer kills three or more victims over a period of time, typically with a, quote, cooling off period. These killers are also typically motivated by some sort of psychological satisfaction. One chilling statistic is that according to the FBI, there may be up to 50 serial killers operating in the United States at any given time that have yet to be caught. This is a shocking idea because if you're like me, you think of serial killers as something from another decade. Most of these killers operated back in you know, the 1970s, the 1960s, long before the introduction of DNA evidence. So surely that would make it nearly impossible for any modern serial killer to evade capture for very long. Unfortunately, killers learn from the mistakes of other killers. For example, a killer or killers may spread their victims out over different locations, making it more difficult to see the connection between victims. And even if that connection is made, there's all too often the issue of multiple law enforcement agencies working together. So this week, we go all the way back to late 1800s London, more specifically Whitechapel, to discuss the first modern serial killer, Jack the Ripper. On this episode, I talk with Dr. LaVon Towell. Dr. Towell is a professor of English at Daytona State College who teaches a literature course on Jack the Ripper. Welcome to this week's mystery, The Unsolved Murders of Jack the Ripper, on From the Void. All right. Welcome back. And uh, thank you so much uh, uh, for coming on the show tonight and talking about uh, yet another mystery. In this, in this case, Jack the Ripper. Oh, well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. So tell people a little bit about your background because, you know, you're a professor, but you don't necessarily teach, you know, like history or true crime. But you uh, were able to develop a course, at least at one point, um, on the subject of Jack the Ripper. So tell people a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this particular topic. I've been uh, interested in the Ripper. Uh, when I was a kid, I, I read a lot of Victorian novels and, and I just loved the era. And then I was reading a true crime book. Um, that I think I got at a scholastic fair that had 
the Ripper in there, and I didn't know it was a real thing. I thought it was a legend. And so as soon as I, I think I was nine or ten, and as soon as I saw that it was real, I found every book I could to, to, just to, to read the, the background and what people thought. Um, it was almost like Loch Ness to me. It was, it was the, just the weirdest <laughs> thing. So, um, and I kept that up, uh, kept up the interest. When I got into graduate school, um, we were allowed to teach uh, honors courses, and then they developed a class called the First Seminar at the University of Tulsa where you could teach basically whatever you wanted to as long as you had literature in there. And so I, I developed a course called Jack the Ripper's London. So we, we talked about the context and um, things connected to the Ripper. So we started off with uh, like a Dickens short story and then moved into the era, um, read uh, Jack London's People the Abyss, the book. And um, so a lot of of uh, background and, and some people were disappointed because they just wanted to use straightforward serial killer kind of class, but it's like, that's, that's not what I'm allowed to do. Um, but I taught that for, I think, three years at uh, University of Tulsa as I was going through my master's and, and, and uh, PhD. Um, so then I got a job here in Florida and teach mostly composition and literature. But a few years ago, they developed a class. Every undergraduate has to take one literature class and to make it... Uh, transferable all this the schools agreed on a type of class and they said what do you want to teach and I was like are you kidding <laughs> so <laughs> I got to I'm teaching a uh, it's not just Jack the Ripper but it's a serial killer class so uh, and uh, a couple of times they've asked me I've had people at the school come and say how is this literature again and I have to show them that I have like Flannery O'Connor I have uh, Truman Capote you know some things that are considered literature in there we talk a lot about true crime but I'll, there is literature it is literature based so um, and I, I can't be happier I can't believe they get they pay me to, to do this so I've been doing this for about four years along with the other classes so it's, it's a great uh, kind of day off where I get to talk about that since we've been That's online amazing. Uh, in the last year, I didn't teach it because I want to talk about it. It's tough when it's just an asynchronous class. It's like, what's the fun in that? So, <laughs> so yeah, basically, that's that's, that's so my true. history with it. Yeah, and with and with this particular case too. I mean, the only doorway we have, uh, you know, glimpse into this particular series of crimes is through literature. Really, we don't have any first person witnesses who are alive anymore, and so. You know, all we have are are the writings that were left to us, um, and the clues kind of left within those uh, texts. Exactly. I think I saw a documentary recently where they had someone who um, she was the granddaughter of one of the suspects, but that's you know right now that's as close as we can get, and she's in wow. her like nineties. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that a little bit. Um, so, kind of set the scene for people like this. Obviously, you know, most people because it has kind of taken on this sort of legendary status at this point. Um, and so, talk a little bit about when what was the time period here? Uh, what was the location and and kind of what was the location like? What was the environment like uh, during that period of time? Well, this was 1888, so this was. Uh 
everybody says London, but it was there are a lot of districts around around London. It's kind of like where you'd say L.A., but you might be in Glendale or Burbank, or so. It's just one of those towns that's uh, the greater area suburb. I don't except to these are just. Uh, districts around London and closely connected to London, which causes issues later, by the way, because of the police forces. But um, so you have this area, especially where most of the murders happened was in uh, a district called Whitechapel. So uh, it's obviously since it happened there, you'll see that uh, named referenced more in England than other places. Here we usually just say London, but like there was a rock band called Whitechapel and they, they sort of referenced uh, the murders, that kind of thing. But um, so the area, uh, especially at, at around 1888, you're seeing a, an influx of immigrants from a lot of places, including from the 1850s on, from the pogroms of Russia and other places. A lot of Jewish people were coming into the area, as well as other people from uh, East Eastern Europe, uh, just since uh, London at the time was the biggest city on the planet. So you're looking, and then this is sort of the nadir, the ending of the uh, the British Empire, but still there, and it still has that cachet. And as I said, it's the, just this huge place everybody had heard of, on, and uh, uh, everybody just assumed that you could make your your fortune there. So uh, there was, like I said, a huge influx of people, um, and I always say like the the uh, the crime itself um, was sort of the perfect storm because, of, as I said, the influx of immigrants, as well as people from rural areas moving into the city as well, uh, not just to make more money or because they didn't want to live in the country, but also because of mechanization, industrialization, um, a lot of their jobs were just disappearing. Things that they would work piecemeal at home, they could make a living in their little communities that just wasn't possible anymore because in the city you could put a machine on it and make it better, faster, and make more money that way. So um, so you had all these people sort of fighting for space, fighting for jobs. Um, Whitechapel, uh, like a lot of little districts, was mostly lodging houses where people were actually um, fighting not just for jobs, but for room and for places to sleep. Most of it was just places where you could rent for the night. There was a lot of places that you could actually uh, rent like an apartment for a month or even longer uh, unless you had really good money. Um, one of the things that was fascinating to me when I first saw it, I, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie um, From Hell with Johnny Depp yeah. that, that dealt with this. Not well, but but the, the appearance was pretty good, although a little clean. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah, so one of the things that was fascinating was, yeah, you could rent a room. Um, you could rent, usually people rented a double bed, and that way you could have the cost with someone else. It may be a stranger, but you're both sleeping in the same bed. A single bed was going to be more because you're on your own. And, and if you couldn't afford either one of those, you could actually afford a place on a rope, which they would tie a rope from one end of the wall the, to the other, and this coarse rope, and people would just lean on it and try to sleep, and you would have to pay for a place along that rope. And it's just fascinating. So they show that really quick in From Hell, where Heather Graham is, is there as Mary Jane Kelly. And it goes really quickly. And I wonder how many people watching that understand what's, what's happening there. Because it just looks odd. Yeah. Just a flash of her laying there, and, or, or leaning, basically. And then, uh, then it goes away. 
but uh, you're talking about pre-plumbing, um, yeah, the, the streets, a lot of them especially were still, uh, they looked where they were um, sort of slanted in the middle because that's where they would sluice all of the detritus into the middle of the street and then uh, wash it away that way. So we had a lot of people who, you know, since you didn't have indoor plumbing, there were a lot of buckets and people would just throw their stuff out of the top window onto the street. So that, that made you really, really careful as far as where you're walking and how close to the sidewalk and how close to the road that you wanted to walk. Oh of course, gosh. you had horses and things like that, that that you had to navigate as well. Um, so cobblestones were pretty predominant, and that's one of the things you'll see with uh, when they talk about sort of the stereotypes and the myths of the era. That's, they do get that right. Uh, Whitechapel was mostly cobblestone. So if, and that was considered pretty uh, modern for the time and, and if they could afford that. But hardly any lighting, that's one of the things that actually came out uh, or came about because of this case. Um, there are a few things that actually did get improved directly because of this. this is one of the things that, that Queen Victoria advocated and because of this case that they actually put in some street lights. Um, but for the most part, uh, yeah, very, very uh, dirty, very um, crime-ridden, a uh, lot of petty thefts, uh, a lot of assaults. Uh, if you look at some of the statistics, it's just shocking that it's just a daily, uh, maybe hourly occurrence there. It's just, it was just a way of life, as well as... Um, uh, the idea that policemen, uh, famously, there were a few roads, especially in Whitechapel, where policemen refused to walk down unless they had at least four together. There was sort of a, 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 um, a rule of thumb was that if we don't have four of us, we're not going in this area. So not only was it crime, you knew that police weren't going to be there. And if you called them, they weren't going to go. So, wow. so it's, it, yeah, so it was a really, really uh, noisy as well this, for all hours of the night uh, as well. And um, this was also a place since they wanted to cater to the city proper, but of course you don't want the smells and everything like that. A lot of uh, slaughterhouses were located in places like Whitechapel. So you had people slaughtering animals, uh, especially in the early in the morning because they wanted it out as soon as people woke up and as soon as people were going to the stores. So at two, three, four in the morning, you had people slaughtering horses as well as other uh, animals. Um, so the smell and people walking around with bloody clothing was just what you saw. So this idea, again, first with the light, you can't really tell, or with the lack of light. And the other thing was there's so many people walking around with blood all over them that it didn't stick out. So there were a lot of things, as I say, it was almost a perfect storm that, that allowed uh, the Ripper to really get away with, with what he did. Wow. Yeah. Some of that I had not heard before, just in terms of the, the lack of lighting, it, it you know, would have been very easy to operate under the cover of darkness because all of these crimes took place at night, correct? Uh, early morning. One of them took place uh, almost broad daylight. It was almost complete. Uh, the sun was almost up. But um, but for the most part, yeah, early morning hours, uh, between like three and seven for the most part. Yeah. Wow. 
And you mentioned, uh, you know, the butchers being prevalent in the area. Um, I, I remember reading that that was actually one of the theories, uh, and we can get into that, uh, obviously, um, in terms of suspects and someone who may have known their way around, at the very least, a body, maybe not a human body, you know, but as a butcher, you would know kind of, you know, your way around knives and things. Um, so talk about Jack's MO. Like, at this point, obviously, early on, he doesn't have the nickname quite yet, but uh, he definitely has a very distinct, he kind of stands out from your, from your atypical murder. Yes. Yeah. He had, um, and this is what, uh, in eight or 1988, the FBI came over for sort of a special commemoration and they put together a, a uh, profile, which I thought was, was pretty interesting because it sort of collated the stuff that we've sort of had just bits and pieces of over the years. And one of the things is he was a blitz attacker, which meant, um, first of all, uh, his victim pool, the idea that he went after prostitutes, um, we're not sure, and it's probably not true that he looked specifically for prostitutes. It was just actually who else is going to be out at that time in the morning, in the day, um, especially unaccompanied, especially women in the Victorian age. Yeah, you're not going to, to be out. That's, it wasn't socially acceptable as well as not safe. But uh, prostitutes, even up to today, that's why so many serial killers do kill prostitutes, because they're... Uh, a, an easy victim pool, uh, because they not only come up to you, you don't have to uh, find them, uh, or you don't have to, uh, try to attract them. You don't have to, to do anything like even somebody like Ted Bundy would do. Um, but they also would take you to a secluded area. So they sort of took him to an area where he could kill them. So he would go with them and then strangle them very quickly. And uh, some of the theories say, yeah, from behind, where you would just grab them as soon as he was in an area where he thought uh, it was uh, secluded enough, he would strangle them very quickly. um, Because as the FBI said, uh, uh, there's some theories that say a couple of different people who had poisoned people in the past that we know did actually could have been the Ripper because some serial killers changed their M.O., which is true. But the problem is that the M.O. for Jack the Ripper, the, the strangling had nothing to do with his M.O. The strangling was how ha- his M.O. was the mutilation. And there's a difference between uh, what he wanted to do, like what his ritual was versus what an M.O. is. And so uh, that's also one of the reasons why there wasn't a lot of blood around some of the areas, which gave rise to the myth that they were killed somewhere else and then placed where they were found. Well, he strangled them and, and killed them very quickly, and as soon as the heart stops beating, the blood starts, stops pumping. So by the time he was starting to cut them up, then there wouldn't be that flow of blood that there would be if they were alive. So his whole point was, for some serial killers, it's the ritual of the fear of the, the person, the uh, uh, pain inflicted on the person, the torture. For the Ripper, it was the opposite. He wanted them gone right away, and so he could inflict the, the pain on them. Um, so, yeah, so his MO was to, to find uh, these women who would take him to an area where he thought he could do what he wanted. In fact, uh, the second murder, the official murder, um, I've, I've seen this sort of uh, 3D rendering of the police after the first murder, uh, which was first official murder, which was actually a third of a series in the area, the police had stepped up their patrols, and the, the, he had a 
a 15-minute window to do what he wow. did, and he did it and got away, and they never suspected it. It was he had the he was probably the luckiest person um, as far as a, a, a few of the the murders he committed. But as I said, it was it was almost like a perfect storm that that helped him. Yeah, that's that's uh, pretty remarkable, and also makes you wonder also if he had some sort of inside information into you know where the police were going to be. Yes, that that is uh, something that that has been uh, talked about, especially the idea that maybe even being a policeman, or at least uh, knowledgeable enough, which does also uh, negate all these theories about him being some sort of of. Uh, rich person who came there on the weekends or something like that. No, this is somebody who really, really knew the area and, and knew it very, very well. And so he, it, it, down to where uh, the habits of the people who lived there and the people who worked there, including the police. Yeah. Yeah. I'd, I'd heard that, that theory as well. And it seems that uh, it's highly unlikely. It seems like this is somebody who, if they didn't live in the area, they at the very least knew the area very, very well and could blend in without sticking out. Yeah, exactly. The, uh, we talk about um, one of the things that the police did, um, well, just in, in uh, common sense terms, they would try to uh, just block off the crime scene. And uh, one of the policemen talked about, he, he gave an interview to an American newspaper and said, uh, well, we surrounded the crime scene and we blocked off every entrance and every exit uh, in a ring. And when we turned around, there were like 50 people in the area because somehow there were at least two entrances that we didn't know about, that we couldn't find. So that's one another thing, that the way that these buildings were situated, the way that they were made, weren't necessarily in a grid, weren't necessarily all at one time. So they created their own alleyways and other air ways to get in different places. So not only did that help him uh, get to a secluded spot, but it also helped him leave very quickly. Because, uh, in fact, they said at the, at, uh, the time as well, people uh, wouldn't really lock their doors so some you could have somebody who was at your back door just opens the door, walks through your house, and walks out the front door, and nobody ever knew. Wow. So, yeah, just so many things <laughs> just kind of came together. <laughs> yeah, so talk about... so. One of the things that's kind of interesting is is there's what's called the canonical uh, victims, where yeah. there's the sort of kind of agreed upon by by ripperologists and, and historians. Uh, there's like five victims, I think, and then potentially as many as eleven. So talk about that a little bit. Why is there a little bit of a discrepancy between the agreed upon numbers? Well, we have, uh, as I said, there were two before the canonical five, but we have one um, who was. Uh, um, Emma Smith, Emma Smith in, uh, in uh, April, uh, who was killed, uh, who was stabbed. And then you had one uh, who was Martha Tabram or Turner. Uh, can't really figure out what her real name was. Uh, but I think she was married to a man named Tabram at the time, but had not seen him in, in a long t years. So I think they finally figured out that uh, who she was. But um, she was killed in the beginning of August, whereas the canonical five begin at the end of August. The issue is because um, Smith 
was robbed, and she actually um, was uh, with somebody before um, the, the killing, and that she told people she had actually ran into a friend of hers um, and said that she, she had been assaulted. Her ear was cut, and her abdomen was really, really cut up, and she had actually been violated with some sort of object but didn't know what it was. So a couple of men at least had had robbed her and then uh, assaulted her, and she was trying to just sort of play it off or, or just say, you know, don't worry about it. But a friend finally took her to the hospital, and she died hours later of peritonitis. Um but yeah, so she had, uh, but she had had enough time to tell people that it was a couple of men, at least, um, who did that to her. Uh, and then um, Martha Tabram or Turner in uh, early August was stat was found on a uh, a stoop, and she had been stabbed. But it looks like with a couple of different weapons, one of them being a bayonet, which made them think that it could have been a soldier. So there was a, a there was a, a long farcical search for a soldier, a soldier, because a friend of Martha's had had supposedly seen somebody with her and uh, volunteered to do an identity parade with soldiers, but they couldn't identify one, and they think she was actually just making it up and wasting people's time. But um, she was, Martha Turner was stabbed 31 times in the neck and the abdomen. Um, so because of that, some people do put her in with the other victims of Jack the Ripper. But with the two different knives and one of them being a bayonet and the frenzy of 31 uh, and without mutilation, or at least it was stabbing rather than cutting. Uh, so... Again, yes, there could be a difference. This could be a, a killer trying out some te techniques before he gets to the one he's he's familiar and, and comfortable with, which does ha happen a lot. There's uh, the second victim, the canonical victim, had hesitation cuts on her neck, which means that he may not have been comfortable with what he was doing, so he had messed up at least once. Um, but uh, so with these two... It just depends on whether or not more and more you'll see researchers who are, are putting her in that category with the other ones. But but as far as the police at the time and for a long time, yeah, we had the five canonical, which happened after her. The up to 11 are called the Whitechapel murders. So um, that's a little bit distinct from the idea of Jack the Ripper, because they're just talking about the murders that occurred in one area in a specific amount of time. And the Whitechapel murders are from 1888 to 1891. And so they include, in 1889, you had Alice McKenzie and another. Um, in 1891, you had a couple more as well, uh, that, but didn't follow the same mutilation or strangulation at the beginning and then mutilation that Jack the Ripper uh, exhibited. So... So that's why you, that's it why just depends on what they consider all the responsibility of this one person versus uh, all of the victims around the same time. Because as we talked about before with the violence that occurred in the area, there was a lot of violence, a lot of, uh, of uh, assault, but murders were still relatively rare. Uh, and that's, I think, another misconception is that uh, people think at the time there's just murders all the time there. Well, that's that's not 
the cases, the reason why Jack the Ripper stuck out is because most murders, just like now, were very domestic. There were just uh, a, a, a matter of somebody who knew somebody else got mad or whatever. Um, but uh, these ideas of stranger murder, uh, it was very rare. So that's why they're lumped together as those 11 murders over a couple of periods or a couple of years, because it just didn't happen very often. I've seen some statistics. It's debatable, but one report I saw said that in 1887, there were only six murders total in Whitechapel and the surrounding area. And so now we're looking at three within a couple of months. Um, so it's a reason why wow. that um, it became a big deal. I mean, the press was another reason, but but yeah. So that's the the biggest difference between um, the numbers is depending on um, what you consider, yeah, Ripper murders or Whitechapel murders, and even of the canonical five. Uh, a lot of researchers don't agree that those five were all the Ripper. So it, it is interesting. Interesting, yeah, yeah. And I was going to say you you mentioned something earlier. Uh, I I personally I think would be more inclined to 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 loop in another murder that took place prior to what's agreed upon as the first, uh, just because as you said we we know so much more about serial killers now and the pathology of a serial killer. I mean the term wasn't even around back then. Um, but we do know now so much more. And one of the things that we know is that oftentimes, you know, they, there's an escalation leading up to, as you said, kind of perfecting their personal signature MO. So I would be more inclined to believe that there probably was a victim before, uh, Mary Nichols versus, you know, a, a change to the MO later on down the line, you know, these later murders. Sure. And, and, sure, and, and that's part of the debate with his final victim, uh, or final canonical victim, because when you're talking about that escalation, it could be that, you know, why, if that is his final victim, why did it stop? Uh, because uh, if you look at the, the case itself, uh, uh, the, the murder itself, it looks like he basically did everything he wanted to do. And he had escalated so much that there was nothing left for him. So he, he, he stopped uh, for whatever reason. Whether it's he thought he accomplished his goal, but yeah, if you look into the case when we get there, uh, the things that that were done to to her, yeah, you could see this is the height of escalation. Yeah. So talk about the so the first murder that that is relatively agreed upon, right? So Mary Nichols, uh, August thirty first, eighteen eighty eight, I believe. Um, what's kind of interesting and sort of unique to him and, and probably speaks to a lot of kind of the pathology of, of who this killer was, was, as you said, there, there was a lot of cutting involved specifically targeting. It seems like genitals and things like that, things that almost going after their femininity itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Especially with, especially with, uh, with uh, just right from the beginning, which the beginning, does, which uh, link all of these together is, uh, not only the, the blitz attack, the fact that there wasn't a lot of blood around her um, and that her throat was cut and that her abdomen was mutilated. Those link all of the victims, uh, except when we get to the, the third, um, and there's a reason for that. But yeah, so, and what he did, uh, he, he cut their throat and then he uh, cut their throat so much that their head was almost severed in most cases. 
which was also something that, that linked. So he had that kind of power as well as skill in order to cut, because that, that's not easy to do. Um, I, not from my experience, I'm from whatever. Um, but yeah, so uh, from left to right, which also... Uh, this something that linked them, which led some people to think that he was left-handed, which is odd. Um, in fact, uh, one of the doctors, I think, said it in a newspaper article, which and people sort of ran with it because even then, died the, a person who's left-handed was sort of sinister, right? So, uh, of course, yeah. it was anything to make that the killer somebody else, somebody that's not quote unquote normal, right? It's, well, he's left-handed too. Yeah. So. Um, and her abdomen, yes, was mutilated, um, but not as much as the rest. But again, it, that could be explained uh, by somebody that's doing it for the first time, that this was the way that he was practicing. But yeah, it does point to, and that's what the, uh, the profile showed as well, some that had a domineering mother and that he's trying to um, uh, basically hurt women. Uh, as a sort of a proxy for the woman that he really, really hates, sort of like Edmund Kemper in California. Yeah. So talk about a little bit before we get into the next victim here. What was the type of, um, uh, what was the kind of policing like in terms of kind of the, um, uh, I don't, I'm, the, the term is escaping me, but uh, it, you know, obviously this is pre-fingerprint, pre-DNA, ah. you know. So were they even able to determine what weapon was used? And was it the same weapon used from crime to crime? Or, or what were they able to determine based on their understanding of crimes at that point? Yeah, it was not a lot of uh, forensics, right, at the at the time. Just basically, forensics, yes. <laughs> there was the idea of, of uh, as I said, they cordoned off the scene, not necessarily to preserve the scene, but to just keep everybody where they could see them. So if somebody was there already, they wouldn't let them leave, that kind of thing. So the idea of yeah, preserving the crime scene wasn't necessarily something they were even worrying about. Uh, so, and these were public places, which is almost ridiculous to, to try to preserve that. Um, people were just walking in and out of there. And as I said, when they tried to cordon off one area, and uh, then you know, people were all, away, all over the place. They just didn't have the numbers of people at the time to, to necessarily do that. Um, yeah, the knife, they thought it could be something like a, uh, what a shoemaker would use, which was long and pointed. That was as close as they could get. They, not necessarily the specific knife. You'll see this debated, of course, a lot as well. But um, uh, from what I saw, especially from uh, a couple of the higher-ranking people who wrote books later, um, not necessarily just focusing on this, but their, their time, uh, but they would mention when they worked for the police, and they would talk about, uh, Melvin McNaughton was one of them who talked about um, they had the kind, they thought the kind of knife that was used, but so many different professions use something like this, that it was long, as long as it was long, um, and, and skinny, that's what the kind of knife that they thought. Um, and as I said, when you see a bayonet, uh, and uh, a different type of knife that was used on an earlier victim. That's why they kind of ruled it out. And then even though to Mary Jane Kelly, they think there was a small axe involved as well. So it's not like they think he was just exclusively one, but it does point to that. So 
um, they were able to as I said, determine the kind uh, as far as it looked like a tradesman's knife, which again is another thing that sort of excited the population and pointed uh, in, in certain areas, which uh, for better or for worse uh, didn't necessarily help at the time, because as I said, going back to, you had the influx of immigrants, you had the influx of, of people, um, especially Jewish people. Um, so that just made people uh, target immigrants at the time. It has to be a tradesman and it couldn't be uh, a British person again, because they, they just couldn't believe a British person could do something like that. Um, so uh, a lot of people at the time um, were harassed um, uh, and uh, especially if they worked in some sort of profession where they were using a knife. So, uh, as yeah, that is, Oh, go, go sorry, yeah, as go far ahead. as, as far as other things they did door to door canvassing, uh, they put up pamphlets. Um, they had a little bit more leeway than I think they would now because they would just, they searched, uh, houses and, and lodging houses near the areas. Um, as well as uh, as well as slaughterhouses, they um, uh, and looked into the background of especially butchers who worked uh, for other companies. So uh, just a lot of the stuff that that um, I think we still do today. Yeah, they they were doing that at the time. Interesting, and and one of the things that uh, you know you think about, you know, modern crimes oftentimes they're able to recover the murder weapon. And in this situation, they never recovered the weapon or weapons in, in this case, right? Exactly. There's a, uh, Melvin McDonald again, who wrote this, I think it was 1894. He wrote a letter because they had, uh, the newspapers had drummed up the, the case again, and it actually been accusing one specific person of being the Ripper and talked about the knife that he had. And McNaughton had mentioned that uh, that's not the knife. We can prove he bought that in like 1891, uh, way after. And that knife was used by this, this person they were accusing, but it was not the same. There was no knife ever recovered from the Ripper murders. Nope. Which which is interesting again going back to the profile because he showed the killer showed a lot of tendencies of being um, a uh, not somebody that's organized because it looked like his victims were chosen randomly which is one of the big uh, indicators of a disorganized serial killer but the idea that he brought his weapon and took it away with him shows organization. So, so he's one of those that straddles and just messes up this idea of categorizing killers because he shows aspects of both. Interesting. Yeah. So at this point, you know, after the first victim, obviously we've got this horrific murder, but there's not a, a series of murders quite yet. And so we, we move into the second murder, Annie Chapman on September 8th, 1888. And at this point, it sounds like we at least have, potentially a description of a killer. There may have been a witness at this point. So talk about uh, what made that particular murder unique. Yeah. Uh, at first I would say that a couple of days before that, the press had, had, um, had put out a story about leather apron who had, that's one of the people who, uh, the prostitutes had, tar- had had mentioned had talked about to the police. Somebody, either a, a policeman had told the press or 
they think maybe a prostitute had talked to the press um, and mentioned that they thought maybe this guy that they had nicknamed Leather Apron was the killer. Um, and again, sort of incited uh, anti-Semitism uh, because that was a trademark of Jewish tradesmen were, were these long leather aprons that they would wear. A lot of different, not just butchers, but a lot of different vocations. Um, and they did find, the police knew who this person was. They did bring him in and uh, alibied him for two of the murders, yeah, including a Chapman after that. But uh, it is important to, yeah, as, as a distinction that um, this is also somebody who almost got killed by a mob who, because um, they had, uh, the, somebody had talked to the press and so people had figured out who he was and, and uh, a, a group of people were around him and the police had to help him. He was somebody who, though, um, extorted prostitutes uh, and, so, uh, and threatened people with a knife. So, um, but he, as I said, did find an alibi. So when we get to Annie Chapman, um, yes, yeah, she was cut. Um, but before, uh, yeah, they found her. Yeah, you had um, a couple of people. Um, uh, were, when you were talking about a witness, uh, did you mean the, the woman who thought she saw Annie with somebody, or are you talking about um, the men? Yeah, I, I guess in general, I, I, from my understanding, there were a couple potential witnesses okay. uh, that that kind of described his appearance a little bit, which kind of it kind of made me laugh a little bit because of the deerskin cap. I'm like, yeah. oh, so it was Sherlock Holmes. Okay, exactly. Okay, yeah. right, and I and I think. Um, that uh, yeah, the, the descriptions. The problem is that, uh, especially with most of the scholars, most of the police, that they didn't put really any uh, stock in almost any of the descriptions because the problem is that uh, whoever a prostitute was talking to could be somebody they were with for a couple of minutes and then on to somebody else. So. So the the issue is that whoever they were with, yeah. So we had at this time somebody who was seen um, in, uh, yeah, the deerskin cap. You also saw a description of somebody who was wearing sort of a, a checked coat. Um, but the problem also with that is that I these are descriptions. As I said, first of all, the deerstalker, somebody wearing a deerstalker in the city would be, yeah, um, kind of like somebody wearing a cowboy hat in Times Square, it would really, uh, really stick out. Out of place a little. Yeah, deerstalker <laughs> is really, I mean, what the name uh, implies, it's a, a hunting hat. And um, uh, Conan Doyle, by the way, always hated the idea of the deerstalker. <laughs> he mentioned it said he always regretted even putting it in the... Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> But but yeah, so we have uh, those witnesses. I think with with each one of these, you have the the descriptions, like I said. So, um, and uh, later we have after um, these two on the double of it, you've got witnesses that were probably closer to seeing who really really may have killed them. But yeah. Um, the other thing the other is, thing is that, that, yeah, you were talking about this yeah, wasn't a series yet, a series but, yet but the press was already press treating was already it as if it were. They did they think did that think Smith and Turner were Smith part 
of a series, even though the police said they weren't. So people were kind of getting uh, anxious, even though um, the Ripper probably had only killed one, uh, and this was his second. People were thinking this may have been his fourth. So you did have a lot of excitement at the, at the time, as well as people who were giving um, uh, interviews to the press for nothing other than money, that they were just basically making things up. Um, so that's why it's always tough to, uh, yeah, so the, I think the description also talked about it being um, a swarthy uh, um, my favorite, though, is, my favorite is a description who said, uh, or this person who said, um, that the man had a carroty mustache. I still don't know what that means exactly. Did it, does he mean the color or did it, was it shaped like a carrot? <laughs> I, my my mind immediately went to uh, kind of an orangish red, but maybe yeah. maybe not. So I, I just that <laughs> that's good. So at what point at what point in uh, in the series of murders does the nickname kick in? Because this this came from the press, really, right? Yeah, um, it, right. So it's it's it goes to the letters, which is another whole issue uh, of the case, um, which makes this yeah, a very a very new case. Uh, the the letters that were written to the press. Um, and that uh, hotly debated uh, or, uh, from that time whether it came from uh, the uh, the killer or not. There are two that are possibilities, probably. Um, but uh, one of them it was was uh, after uh, the double event um, on uh, September thirtieth that came to light. It, I think it was mailed, written September 24th, uh, delivered September 27th, um, that did give the name. Talked about, uh, I'm down on whores, and I won't keep killing, and I'm laughing at y'all, you cops, basically. And he says, yours truly, Jack the Ripper. That's where we get that name. Um, but there are a few issues with that. One of them is that it was written uh, and and uh, sent to the Central News Agency, which is kind of like Associated Press or UPI now. Um, how would just an ordinary person know what a Central News Agency was? Why didn't he write it to the Star newspaper, which was one that was really covering it, it was hugely uh, influential at the time, or a specific person? Uh, the idea that he sent it to a central news agency, which is the one who would then send it out to a lot of different newspapers, it just, it was, unless that person was a journalist himself who knew that's right. how it worked. And so, yeah, uh, over the years, they even think it was a, na a man named George Sims who was uh, the reporter who wrote it, they think. Yeah, I mean, it certainly helps drum up, uh, you know, increase in your circulation there. <laughs> oh, it's a, and it started the whole idea of giving a serial killers nicknames. It really did. Really? That was the first. Mm. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. And you don't see that often with, with serial killers, uh, in terms of interacting with the press or the police, you know, you see taunting very rarely, uh, you know, like with the Zodiac and the Black Dahlia killer. But beyond that, like you don't really see that as a, common trait. Yeah. And, and I think there's, they're smarter than that because they don't know what uh, a 
officials, authorities really have access to as far as uh, capabilities and technology. Um, Dennis Rader was another, the BTK killer, who who did write to the, the Wichita newspaper. Um, and he actually then wrote to a policeman as well. And uh, he worked for a church as a deacon and uh, put his whole sort of manifesto on a floppy disk. And he asked the policeman if, can you trace floppy disks? And the policeman told him no. So he sent it, (laughs) which is what got him caught. He was upset. There's actually an interview where he talks about how that policeman owes me an apology for lying to me. (laughs) It's amazing. Just goes to prove that, you know, this, this uh, misconception that all serial killers are, are geniuses, yes. you know, it's like, no, no. Right. We oh have caught them, in, some of them in the dumbest ways. Uh, Ted Bundy was going the wrong way down a one-way street and he was high and he did, and that was what, how he got caught. Um, wow. Yeah, David Berkowitz, the son of Sam, there was a parking t- uh, ticket that he got for where he had killed somebody and they traced him that way. So, yeah, we've, uh, well, back to uh, Edmund Kemper in California, he turned himself in and a few have done that. Um, so, yeah, you're right that this idea of they're all Hannibal Lecter, no. <laughs> no. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I'll be back next week with my guest, Dr. LaVon Towell, for part two of The Unsolved Murders of Jack the Ripper. Until then, if you enjoy the podcast, consider telling a friend and leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. You can also follow us on social media at the From the Void podcast to stay up to date. And don't forget to subscribe to ensure you never miss a new episode. I'll see you next time on From the Void.